0: Welcome to the Petro Nerds Podcast with your hosts Trisha Curtis, CEO of Petro Nerds, and Ethan Bellamy, Managing Director of Midstream Strategy at East Daily Capital. This show combines upstream and midstream expertise in a Rocky Mountain showdown, brought to you by Digital Wildcats. Hello, everybody. It's Ethan Bellamy. I'm Managing Director of Midstream Strategy for East Daily Capital. I'm here with my friend, Trisha Curtis of PetroNerds. This is our very first podcast, vlog, whatever you want to call it. We're pretty excited. Got my uh, two boys who may wander in every now and then. We're at the kitchen table. Um, East Daily, we are the world's leading midstream intelligence firm. We serve asset managers, private equity, integrated oil companies, and midstream energy companies. And I just busted in on Trisha and, and made her just get started because she wanted to over plan this and overthink it. And I'm yeah, like, he did. basically all you got to do is show up and just be yourself.
1: Yep. But he gave himself a really long intro. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, if you know me, then, you know, that's par for the course. All right. So you did some cool stuff this week. Yes, tell us, did. Tell us what you did this yeah, week.
1: Yeah. So, Trisha Curtis, I'm the CEO of Petronerds, and uh, it, everybody should just know who Petronerds is. And if you don't, you will through this mm, podcast. Okay. Uh, <laughs> so this week I did cool stuff. So Oxford Institute for Energy Studies has an oil day every year. Normally it's in Oxford. Uh, this year obviously it wasn't in Oxford. And it took place at 2 in the morning, which was super exciting. Rolled out of bed at 1.30 and had four hours of, of oil day. And so we talk about OPEC, we talk about demand, and we talk about shale. And it's all Chatham House rules, uh, but so you don't give anyone attribute for it, and it's very confidential, but it's a great session with uh, really intelligent minds that's coming together to talk about stuff. And I presented on your shale.
0: And so before you dive into what you presented, what did you hear that was the most interesting? Because you told me something about Russia that I thought was pretty compelling.
1: Yeah, I think, and not just, not just from this oil day, but I think the perceptions about the market are where the Saudis are at and where the Russians are at is, is very, very interesting thinking. I, Cause it was on the back of this whole OPEC meeting that we just had in this OPEC plus. And it wasn't really Saudi or Russia not agreeing to these cuts. It was two outside players, the UAE and Kazakhstan kind of. Stirring up, stirring up a mess and they didn't necessarily want to agree to it. And Russia and Saudi Arabia seem like they're both in on it. They're ready to keep this market sailing. But I think a, one of the most interesting things I think about Russia is that their break even prices from a fiscal standpoint are lower than I expected. They, because everyone thinks they're around 45 to 50, and I think they're sub 45, which means fiscally they can break, break even much lower. And that the, the things that people are trying to hear is that Russia and Saudi Arabia are very conscious of conscientious of demand, and that's something relatively new because you you know they would focus on supply and they would focus on s- maneuvering supply up and down from the 1980s. And now, for the first time, they have to be squarely focused on demand, and so they have an incentive to keep prices around. $15. So, wait,
0: you think that's an acknowledgement that EVs and and regulatory issues might you know clamp down on demand, or is it just? you know, worry about demand destruction? What's the, what's the logic there?
1: I think that the reality is the logic behind it is that they have recognized that, I don't know if they endorse peak demand it, it wholeheartedly, but I think they, they recognize that the momentum has turned from their favor and that peak demand at some point is a reality, whether it's now or five years from now or 10 years from now. And that. They've also, from history, we've experienced like what what did happen in the 80s? What happened from the Arab oil embargo and from the price spike? That price spike wasn't, I mean, that actually drove massive efficiency gains in the U.S. and drove people to go buy Toyotas and was the rise of the Japanese auto manufacturing sector. And so this is an unprecedented thing that we've had with COVID and it has shifted people's thinking and sentiment around oil and I think they realized that they went through this price war and realized both very, very quickly that this was a a total screw-up and that they had to backpedal and make this work. And so the result of it is that they've actually been they've done really well through coordinating efforts at least the Saudis and Russians have to keep this working and the market honestly I mean the market's rewarded them they're seeing 48 Brent is relatively impressive given the state of the demand market right now
0: all right so let's dive into what you've told me you think 50 is the right number to model long term based on what they're targeting
1: I think $50 Brent. oil is the right number to model long term for a lot of reasons. And that's because $50 oil is what shale has sort of thrived at. I mean, that's, and this is what I presented is that, you know, if you're, if you're discounting U.S. shale and there might be a lot of political reasons to do that, but $53 WTI is what we averaged for five years in the U.S. prior to COVID. And with COVID, it's been 51 WTI. So U.S. shale has, has thrived under that environment. And globally, whilst you could argue that like, Saudi needs higher fiscal break-evens than 50, and they do, Uh, they have recognized that they're getting 50, and it's better than getting 30, it's better than getting 18 WTI, it's better than the market cratering, so everybody sort of has, and they've been public saying they're budgeting at 50. Exxon, we found out that they were budgeting much higher than 50, which is kind of insane. There was no reason, I mean, they're a really intelligent company, so I'm not sure why they were, their budget, their numbers were so high, because it doesn't make a lot of sense. Well, I don't know
0: if we want to dive into that. I question their strategy of keeping the dividend in place when it doesn't appear to be sustainable right now. But,
1: yeah, a lot of people are questioning their dividend. Yeah. That's, half, that's half the morale and sentiment around the industry right now is that that Exxon fell out of the Dow, that, I mean, if you listen to our last earnings call, it sounded really depressing, like they just didn't have their game on. It sounded like they were on the defensive, and Exxon usually is never on the defensive, and that people are questioning whether they can pay the dividend. And if you listen to the stock market, I mean, if you listen to CNBC, Jim Cramer hates oil, but he'll tell you to buy Chevron and Pioneer if you want to be in it, but nobody has any love for Exxon anymore.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, I, I still don't think we bought them until Exxon cuts the dividend, at least in terms of equities. But... Um, you know, we saw like a thirty percent move in November in oily E and P's, yeah, and a twenty five percent move in oil, so a little higher beta. Yeah, not been terrible lately.
1: No, and I think that's the shift in like that's the shift in the market, the reversal of this whole, you know, tech green. Well, not just the green side, but the tech side, and reversing into cyclicals and the you know the pro vaccine stocks. But the thing with oil is that people want to say this is about People want to say this oil game is this oil price move is about a vaccine and, you know, oil price demands going up. At the end of the day, fundamentals only give you so much. So, your fundamentals aren't thought, you trade off fundamentals, but your technicals, like actual supply and demand, is where oil sits. So, maybe we have a five, you know, a few dollar swing here and there, and that's like, that's how the momentum and how people feel shifts in the market. But the market's telling you right now that supply and demand is telling you we're at 46 and and 48. Like that's where supply and demand is. And it makes sense because the Saudis and everybody got together last week and said, we're gonna increase output. The fact that they can even say they're gonna increase output and the market didn't tank is pretty impressive, especially in light of the year that we've had. I think that people should acknowledge that demand is not quite, I mean, it's bad, but it's not quite as bad as we make it out to be. And it looks pretty decent going to 2021.
0: Yeah, jet fuel's pretty terrible. Jet, jet fuel's awful. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, that's elastic with respect to COVID, right? I think you know, that's we'll see how many people want to take the take the vaccine.
1: That's the so the jet fuel topic is like the heart of the peak demand and like the yeah the IEA forecasts and that are NBP's forecast that it's not coming back. And I think that that's another something that I learned is that that's that jet fuel piece is one of the biggest underlying factors of that, and it's, I'm not certain it's correct. Now, I mean, I don't know when you started COVID and you had to work from home if you thought, hey, we're not commuting, so we'll lose all this gasoline demand. We proved that theory wrong in the US because gasoline demand rebounded relatively well, hasn't completely come back. So clearly the statistics that two thirds of gasoline demand was commuter traffic is BS. So um, people are at home, so they're able to drive and go get the groceries. They're running more errands. They're doing things. So they're not necessarily driving absol- on an absolute basis less. And not everybody's going to work from home forever. I mean, people are going to start opening these offices back up. This question on jet fuel, though, on long-term demand, is whether or not you're going to get on a plane and you're going to go to Asia. I am
0: getting on a plane. It's, I'm getting on a no plane as well. No question about it. Yeah. I mean. As soon as I can. So, Ethan, Bellamy, are you
1: taking? Are you going to get the vaccine?
0: I will. I'm, I will. I am
1: 100% going to get in it. I will.
0: I'm, I'm, you know, look, I acknowledge there are a lot of people who are scared about vaccines in general, but I don't think there's a lot of evidence to support these conspiracy theories. And, you know, I have friends across the political spectrum. You know, some of them are like, you know, the Bill Gates cabal and conspiracy. And then there's, you know, I have Federalist friends who are like everything the government does is fine. Um, I, I can't. Imagine that you'd have a widespread vaccine distribution program that wouldn't be safe and effective. So I'm on board, and I think a lot of people will be on board. And I think, I hope, I mean, I I think the summer of 2021 is going to be like the summer of 1968, except everybody's going to be involved, and it should be like the roaring 20s.
1: That's so. I have I a I have a great friend from that I studied at London School of Economics with, and he's a brilliant economist. And when we talked about this months ago. I mean, he was we were likening it back to the Spanish flu in 1918 and the Roaring Twenties after. And I'm not saying we will have the Roaring Twenties, but I think that this like. These conversations, and when you put your life in perspective about just like, how have you changed your behaviors, and are you gonna get on a plane? So many people in the US were traveling, like we saw domestic travel really go up over Thanksgiving. So, and that's when the virus is raging, and people are still doing that. And I'm not making any kind of political comments on on how people are thinking about the virus, but I'm saying from an oil demand standpoint, we're kind of disproving that, that, we're going to curb demand forever, and I think the reality is 2021 could look a lot more robust. And that I, it's impacted my business not to be getting on a plane. I mean, the fact that I can't go to Oxford, and I have to wake up at one thirty in the morning, and I have to do it again next week for two days in a row. I'd rather be jet lagged. Yeah,
0: I mean, like flying to England versus getting up five hours early. Yeah, but it's <laughs> to be
1: in for, for sure. when you're when you're a small great. business and yeah. you're doing and it's face to face. Like there's only so much that Zoom it can accomplish. A lot but I think the demand from a high level like connection standpoint, and I spoke at this, uh, or I moderated a panel for the Denver Museum of Nature and Science, a couple panels, and one of them was with a, a young woman who was talking about how it was on youth and the age and everything, and she was talking about how her age group, when she was 18 and going to college, how they've they're the tech age they're the ones always on their phones and everything and she said they want to see each other badly like they're over this whole thing and they're the generation that's supposed to be all into this and that they want that interaction so i think yeah. even domestically people getting on planes is going to be big and i think this the question from jet fuel is that a lot of folks say that we're down i think the numbers that we're down 4.7 million barrels a day globally for jet fuel demand. And that's the biggest single component that's keeping oil the lid on oil prices. Um, and that a lot of folks think we won't recover, so we will have a good 500 to 700,000 barrels a day that will never come back. And they attribute that to business travel. And that's just not, uh, well, you could also say you'd be more, your planes will be more efficient, similar to drilling rigs, right? That you have less drilling rigs, the ones you're using are great. Yeah, so. but
0: slowly. You know, I mean, that's the thing on my problem with these very short term forecasts for refined product demand peaks is that, you know, the turnover in the vehicle fleet or the airline fleet, it just doesn't happen. You know, these these planes are expensive and they're going to keep them in service for a long time. Um, you know, I, I think that U.S. shale has been an enormous underappreciated fiscal stimulus since. I don't know, 10 years, right? But in particular, since 2014, the amount of supply and and low energy prices that the economy has gotten used to. And I think what we're going to see is a period of recovery in demand. Um, It will take longer to get the non-OPEC supply back, non-OPEC, non-Russia. And we will also build in some structural fuel consumption off of the low prices that we're going to have and have had which may set us up for you know higher prices you know out out in the future um but you know for now it is just an enormous fiscal stimulus not certainly not on par with what the fed's doing but you know i mean sub two dollars for gasoline and yeah. sub two dollars for diesel fuel i mean that is enormous benefit just to, to you know consumers in the US
1: and that that's a, the other thing people have to take into account is if you were to have a price spike soon and this is where it does matter if that if we were to lose considerable output in the US from places with lots of federal land, if you lose that production and in the near term when you're recovering from an economic slump like we're recovering from has a major impact has less of an impact if you're if you're doing really well but has a major impact especially on the lower income so that elasticity that people that demand elasticity is meaningful And if you chart, actually, U.S. unemployment, U.S. GDP growth, and and U.S. oil demand, and you put that all in one chart, and you look at what happened in 2008, and you see demand came off, and it took us years to sort of recover that oil demand, we never actually recovered it in Europe, so Europe never went back to those, and they've implemented more measures, and they're probably going to do it with all these climate change measures they're putting in now, so you'll probably never see demand as robust as it was before, but even Europe and the U.S. started really growing their demand levels in the last few years. Unemployment came down considerably, and so you had this growth that was compounded with low oil prices, and places like Germany, which manufacture a lot, uh, were really enjoying these low oil prices. And so I think the the world has to appreciate that we had this period in a a modern day age where we had extremely low prices and abundant um, energy, and it is a boon for these economies. And we're... We're not necessarily going to, I don't think we're going to change that. I mean, a lot of people are forecasting that we're going to have a shortfall of investment, but I've been doing this my entire career, and my entire career has been, you know, 10 years of shale, and we've, every time we predict a shortfall of investment. You're such a baby. It, it, does, not, it does not materialize. <laughs> Uh, Ethan's not a baby. He just, <laughs> he just looks like one. Well, <laughs> yeah.
0: the, every year that these these uh, these crises happen, I feel like it takes ten off my life. So we went through a series of nested digressions there, Basically. but I want to get back to what you said about shale this week in your presentation.
1: Yeah. Uh, so my big present, I mean, my takeaway on this, this is that, you know, a lot of folks are asking, is shale sort of dead or alive? Is it going to have a comeback? Is there shale 2.0? And what is then what does shale look like? And, you know, my, my thesis and, and explaining shale is really that we have, production has come off. We peaked it. You know, shale production, the U.S. peaked at over 9 million barrels per day. At the end of last year, it's come down to about 7.3 million barrels per day, given all the the shut-ins and everything that's happened. And Permian Basin production was 4.9 million barrels per day right before COVID. I mean, 5 million barrels a day from just want this major oil play. And I I mean... All right, let
0: me stop you there and interject. Has U.S. oil production peaked forever, or can we reach new highs? And I'm asking that because I have a... Outstanding bet with Colonel Drake on Twitter about this, and I'm betting it hasn't.
1: I think from a technological standpoint, the, from a technological standpoint, the US has not peaked. If if we implement a any kind of uh, a federal fracking ban, or any kind of massive uncertainty that that impacts major drilling opera, drilling and fracking operations in places like Colorado. Well, Colorado's kind of doomed anyway, but Wyoming and New Mexico. Oh, that's a throwaway
0: line. Uh-huh. We're going to have to come back to.
1: Yeah. Uh, with Wyoming and New Mexico if, or if New Mexico's off the table or if we, we start losing production in New Mexico, then we may have peaked. And especially if that if that includes Alaska, if that includes Gulf of Mexico, but from a technical standpoint, I think really let's let's assume that we are sort of capping output. in the next two years, let's assume that we limit permits in in New Mexico. The amount of activity that we're going to see in, in Texas alone, um, it will probably see in Oklahoma as well as North Dakota. And this is what I'm explaining is these three states will be favored. Um, the, there's a midstream piece, obviously, on North Dakota that we, that we should talk about. But those three states are going to be really favored because they don't have a lot of federal land and they're going to really flourish. And I think this, the, the shale 2.0 that you should be looking for is the fact that the cost savings have been real. That, I mean, the cost declines are, you know, service sectors come down. Everything's come down massively. And the frac sand is huge, so I love talking about frac sand. I was so excited in this presentation to talk about it.
0: Feel no more northern white, um, huh? Because uh,
1: <laughs> these. Permian, in the Permian, we, everybody pivoted and they started using in-basin sand the last few years. It's crappy sand. You pump a crap ton of it down hole. This is what happened in 2014. We we just started pumping a ton of sand, ton of water, and lo and behold, it worked. And everybody said it wouldn't, and it did. Uh, now your investors were behind them, right? So the investors were behind the show producers then, not quite behind them now. But a lot of these guys can actually generate money within cash flow and like spend the money that they're making and then that's how they're operating. So, so when people, people say is shale done, a lot of these companies look at EOG as a template of like not
0: everywhere company. though, right? Not and everywhere. the Permian, which is no. where we've seen
1: and exactly I'm, rig I'm like, share
0: just go up and open yeah. up,
1: up. If you're if you're trying to think of examples, like can can operators make money at fifty? Uh, the answer is yes. And if you were look at the Dallas Fed survey and they say, hey, you know, you're not making money. You're going to break even at fifty. That's what it costs to drill a new well. People are drilling new wells, and it's not 50 yet. So people don't always – these operators don't always function exactly the way we think they do on paper. And that's because when prices were above 40 for a month, that's when operators in September and October, that's when operators were starting to say – Hey, they're meeting with their boards and saying, let's get back to work and making that case. Prices then slid down to 36. And hey, they'd already decided to go back to work. And so we've seen that rig count tick up largely in the Permian Basin. But the diversity of those companies within that rig count, I mean, in the past 11 days, from November 18th to November 29th, we saw a massive uptick in rigs in the Permian Basin. And we saw EOG add five rigs alone in that Mm. 11-day period. And we saw Exxon add one. But the reality is, like, that's the shift. And then you saw a ton of private and small private equity players adding rigs. And you would think, hey, during COVID, is, aren't all the private equity players done? I mean, that's the story that we hear. That's what they've all pulled out and they're done. And the they may be done in the future in terms of future investments, but they have these assets here. Right. And so if you're tap rock and you've got, you're only in New Mexico and you've got four rigs, they've been run into this whole thing and really intelligently, like why wouldn't you drill throughout this downturn when your day rates are ridiculously cheap? And also if you're worried that maybe you won't get a drill in a couple of years in New Mexico.
0: Yeah, I mean that is scary. So, what well, we might as well dive in. I'm sure you talked about this on this week, but what do you see for the Biden administration? And apologies to those of you who still think that Trump has a chance, but I'm I'm going forward with the thesis that he will be inaugurated. So,
1: yeah, I mean I'm gonna I'm gonna steer clear of the the, the any of the. The Biden versus Trump on that, but in terms of I've been on the record. Oh, I don't know.
0: That's fun. We could talk about. I told I told uh,
1: (laughs) I told the I told this meeting and I told them I'd be on the record because it was Chatham House rules, and I told them I'm happy to go on the record. And I've been really open about this about Biden because I think the industry has given him a pass, and really uh, the media has given him a huge pass, especially on oil and gas. And it's very clear from their from what their just campaign talked about from the. Their climate plans and everything that they put forth, and then really what Biden said during the debate that they would go after production, and and actually just the fact that what folks are doing in D.C. and they're gearing up. So if you have if you know people in D.C., make a few phone calls and start asking people what's going on. Nobody thinks that this is going to be a slam. I mean, this is not Obama 2.0. And what Sharif Suki has said, what the CEO and CEOs and leadership of, of EOG have all commented on the same thing. They basically said this is going to be. We've worked with the Obama administration. We understand how Biden works. And this isn't the same Biden under Obama. I think it's going to look very different. Now, he won't necessarily, he's not going to be able to ta- pass a big tax hike now if he doesn't, if the Senate doesn't swing. If so, Georgia, right. so, law, depending I on I mean, the that was my up.
0: point, was we really have to watch Georgia because yep. who knows, it's right? It's
1: huge. If the Senate swings and you get the blue wave, then I think oil and gas is in a really, really tough spot.
0: Yeah, and, and my position has been, and I made an actuarial mistake that, that Robert Hefner pointed out to me. said, thank you, Robert. But Joe Biden is 78. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah. um.
0: I mean, he's in the window, right? So will he have a second term? Will he make it to the end of his first term? I mean, as an American, I wish him absolutely the best longevity. I hope he lives to be a hundred. Um, but there's a real chance that Kamala Harris, Kamala Harris, I should say, um, could be the president in one, two, three years. And she seems to be more, I mean, you can argue the metrics, but, you know, was the most liberal senator and is from California. I mean, that's a whole different aspect of the equation in the, the, you know, if you're discounting probabilities.
1: Yeah, and I think the honest, the honest thing you have to say when you're analyzing this market and you're taking politics into account and you have to. And that's what a lot of folks just don't want to do is they want to pretend this is, and they have to. If you're a leader of a company right now, you have to be pretty optimistic and just say this isn't going to be a problem. But the reality is that you have to make this into, you have to take it into account. And this is not going to be the same leadership. And they have, there's a lot of reasons why they would go against oil and gas. They can't probably do it through, if they can't do it through Congress, they're going to have to do it through an executive order. And people realize that you don't, have to, you don't have to ban fracking on day one. You don't have to put an executive order to do that. There's legal implications. All you have to do is create massive uncertainty. And we can see this in Colorado when we haven't actually seen the legislation, but we've created so much uncertainty. Production in Colorado has been sliding since the end of last year and hasn't, hasn't come back. And that's partly because of COVID, but it's also because the framework and the legal and the regulatory environment is so cloudy in Colorado. And it's very, very clear that... Governor Polis is not a friend of oil and gas and this is not this is not a discount to these these uh you know leftist these leftist leaning uh governors and, and stuff but they're not they're no longer pro oil and gas so if you're trying to do business in oil and gas you have to take that into account and New Mexico would be one of the states that obviously has defied that and has done really well but people have to to your point earlier where you said all the money coming in and the massive stimulus we've had severance taxes in these states are hundreds of millions, if not more, a year. I mean, it's a huge amount of revenue that these states bring in. And then we also compound that by we produce this oil. We, we were producing 13 million barrels per day. So we... Re- we produce it, we refine it and then we export it and we capture the whole value chain of that. We're not we're, we're getting the money from the exports. we're getting the money from the exporting of the products. And so that's a massive that's hundred that's it's billions of dollars a year that we are keeping internally and selling. I mean and so when you shift that, even if it's on one or two million barrels a day that we shift and we have to import, it's a whole shift, not just in the direct jobs of producing it, but it's in the shift in all those dollars and across the entire value chain. But and it will have an economic it's very difference.
0: concentrated, right? Mm-hmm. Concentrated benefits and diffuse impacts, right? So, I mean, Texas is a beneficiary of a lot of that value chain. Te-
1: Texas, and so the Gulf Coast Refining Center, Texas is yeah. a huge benefit. But it's not as, I mean, so... If you actually look back at the investment numbers of like when we see when we see the drops in oil and gas and we see the corresponding investment up, So in when we had the last down in 2014, the whole economic sphere saw an impact. Uh, so it, it isn't when you oil and gas stretches across that value chain, yes, your direct impacts like Texas feels lower, natural gas prices, Texas feels lower, gasoline prices. But in terms of like the your impact on your economy, is is greater than just the sheer number of oil and gas jobs or the sheer number of barrels in and barrels out. It has a it has a considerable impact. And I think potentially we could feel that, especially if any of this legislation to really curb you know oil demand or curb oil production in the US of both of those, you're gonna feel that in a different way than we felt in the past. And it's I think furthermore, I think it's gonna be difficult to actually pass a lot of this stuff because you know, it would have been easier to pass more green legislating latest stuff if oil prices were hundred dollars a barrel and they're not. We're looking at fifty dollars forever potentially or roughly ar- around there and I'm happy to take a bet on that and go into details but it's 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 a lot harder to impact you know demand at fifty dollars a barrel.
0: This is true. All right so what else did you present this week?
1: That was that. Was, I mean, that was kind of the gist of it. Uh, All right. And so let's
0: let me go back to some of the other other points you made. So we don't need northern white frac anymore. No, we definitely right. Yeah. Okay. Um, that sandbox. Uh, so that's know. a that's a cute, um, no.
1: The, this frac thing is like the frac. If you want to think about two things that are going to impact the oil industry and the you know limit small technical advances that can make a huge difference on the productive capacity and the cost size or cost point is that all the rigs that you're using right now are your most efficient rigs and they're gonna if you can drill just a little bit longer you can make that each lateral a little bit longer and be a little bit more efficient
0: we've lost hundreds of thousands of people in this industry yep so you'd think that the efficiency of incremental new frac crews incremental new rigs coming back um service costs, all that stuff doesn't seem like it will be you know all that easy to layer back on.
1: you're never gonna we're never going to recover all those jobs so whenever you have a downturn whether it's whether it's you know oil or any any sector when you have a pullback like this you never recover all those jobs because everyone gets more efficient but those efficiencies and the industry has to shift, Toward less people so they can become more efficient, so they can drive that cost, those dot the cost per barrel down. And so you're seeing that on the frac side. We saw Liberty Oilfield Service take over Slumberger. And that that should give you, if you're in the oil business, that should give you, I mean, if you're in the oil business, you need to sort of man up and say, I'm in the oil business. And if you think you're gonna be producing oil two years from now, you need to be thinking about what you're doing now to produce oil two years from now. And Liberty mm-hmm. Oilfield Services, Chris Wright made that. Standpoint of just saying, hey, I'm in this business and I'm going to be the last man standing. So I'm going to I'm going to take over the slumberjä and basically they're going to have they have 22% of the market share and likely I think they'll probably get a little bit more. Which means they if you have 25% of the market you can control it and they can control it from an efficiency standpoint. They just entered into the Haynesville and talk about like their their crews and everything that they're doing and all those efficiencies that they have the speed at which they can do it. It helps move the needle from a production standpoint, he'll move it from a cost standpoint. But that, just drilling faster, drilling a little bit better, incrementally, if everyone drills slightly faster, slightly better, it has a huge impact on the productive capacity. What about
0: the opposite case, though, which is, you know, we've we've overdrilled the core inventory and destroyed, you know, puds and, you know that's going to come back to bite us. Where do you where do you shake out there?
1: So it's a great it's a great question. I love it because it's a that's what they's at this at the Oxford group. They sort of love for the last five years. They've been beating up on me for shale productivity, and every year I tell them they're wrong, and every year I prove them proof to them that they're wrong. I think when you think about like, did we drill out our core? Um, you could have made this, Every people made this argument in the Bakken in 2014 saying the Bakken's done, we're done with, the productivity's over, we've drilled the tier one acreage and, and it's over. And lo and behold, if you look at productivity gains, so if you look at on a barrels per foot basis, the Bakken has just ratcheted up 2017, 2018, 2019, just crushing it. And that's simply because they were slightly late to the party on pumping a lot of crappy hundred mesh down their wells and completing those a little bit better. And the they haven't even kind of tipped into the forward where they could really go. So this whole, we drilled our best acreage. Yeah. So maybe at the time you thought that was your best acreage, but at the time you didn't also realize that putting a bunch of crappy sand down your well actually worked. And truthfully, like what EOG did during 2014, they drilled all these ducks. And then when they, when you listen to that earnings call in like 2016, they were really slow to bring on those ducks because. They knew they were crappier wells because they had gotten so much better at drilling and basically just landing the lateral in the best part of the rock. Mm-hmm. And so if you if you drill slightly better and you're right in a better part of the rock when you frack it, it's going to be a little better. And so they kept having to say, "We got to go back and drill those old ducks. We got to frack those old ducks," and they didn't turn out as good. And their new wells were crushing it. So I think you have to expect. And I mean. You have to expect some big things from companies like that because they're going to take this opportunity to do that. Not every company is going to be. All
0: right. All right. So speaking of EOG and big things, (laughs) do, do we do we do we dare talk about the Buddha?
1: I think we should tackle Dorado before... <laughs> I wanted
0: think. to tackle Dorado, too. Um,
1: and we should get into... I should ask you a question on the midstream side, because I think this gets into the Buddha thing. Um, but I do want to go back to the sand thing, because I think that it's a really simple way to per- appreciate costs, and that your costs already are extremely low on sand, and they, you know, you're no longer using... The, we don't need the stuff in the Midwest, because you have it locally, and if you're in the Permian Basin, you have it locally... And then the next step now is to mine it locally. Literally mining at the well site. And so you're mining it right there, which means you have no last mile solution. Wait, is that
0: a mineral? Do the mineral owners get paid for that? It's or the surface, surface owners it's get a, paid for have, that?
1: It's a, it's a it's a that's a great question. I, I don't know actually I know it's I know it's extremely cheap. And then you can also keep it wet so you don't have to dry it. So actually from a CO two emission standpoint and a like a energy use standpoint, you no longer have to dry this that's stuff interesting. and you get a pump it right there. So the costs Savings, we're talking. Let's just say it's a hundred thousand bucks, two hundred thousand bucks here and there. It really adds up. And if you listen to like Diamondbacks call, they talk about how every one cent at, for one cent savings is a million dollars on free cash flow. Um, that's a huge amount when you start thinking about it like that. So sorry, go. But let's go back to so. Your,
0: so you're saying all that work to that I did to understand sphericity back in the days of the
1: was complete crap. Yeah, I was into it then too until it until I. Completely fell in love with 100 Mesh. And okay. Petroner has an old podcast on 100 Mesh. If you want to go into it, we can... I could spend a whole episode. I mean, I time.
0: did get to blow up some, some sand out of mine. That was cool. Um, that's so, really cool. I've not done that, waste. but... Yeah, sand yeah. is probably awesome. probably a metaphor. I shouldn't done better. Uh,
1: so yeah. gas. I think there's two things. We can get into the, the EOG stuff, but there's two big forays in natural gas in mm-hmm. Q3. And yeah. that was... And by the way,
0: natural gas did not do so well. Mostly weather, though. Yes. In the last month. Yeah. yeah. And actually,
1: yeah. over the course of... If you look at it, on average of the course of 20, if you look at Henry Hub, we've sort of been averaging three bucks before this year, we're at two bucks this year. And so you think about what's going on with natural gas. Well, it's green, it looks a little greener, people are more comfortable with the pricing, they can hedge at $3, and they can, a lot of folks are seeing the long-term trajectory of of gas at at, at, uh, over 250. And that's a considerable differentiating piece that we had from a couple years ago saying, hey, we could get down into, you know, But the 21
0: outlook for gas is pretty solid on declining associated gas production. Yeah. And LNG is going great guns right now. I mean, we basically maxed out all the liquefaction that's in place.
1: Yep. And that's that's a huge component of this. So also, I think, so the other piece of this goes into those two big four. It was... Liberty Oil Field Services saying that we're going to the Hainesville and then EOG calling out this this Dorado play which is really part of their Eagle Ford play. And so you have to say why are these two big companies saying hey we're we're all in love with natural gas when EOG made a concerted effort to pivot hard and fast against natural gas and left sort of everybody else in the dust. And now they're saying, "Hey, we'll go back." And the reason is these break evens are so low. So two fifty MCF starts looking pretty damn good when you're when you can break even at under a buck fifty. And I think it was uh, Meg Gentle had said to a at a conference recently um, the India. She said this at Sierra Week, where basically they can if you can produce it in the U.S. for a buck fifty, and we can, and you can get it to the coast and export it for under $3 or around $3 and then you can get it abroad for 5 bucks including liquefaction you can start seeing where this makes sense. I think the transportation side is a little confusing but this the break evens in the US and that ability to drive costs down and I think if you're just now seeing if you're just now seeing Liberty Oilfield Services just now get into the Hainesville and pull up the wells. They produce, right now, they're IPing 12,000 MCF a day on average. They're monsters. These are great wells. The Haynesville is is crushing it. It's very thermally mature. I mean, you know gas is a smaller molecule. I mean, you pump a ton of 100 mesh down this stuff, I mean, these wells just explode. And so when EOG comes in and says, hey, look at this Dorado play, it's not like they... They've had this for a while. They didn't pull this out of their back pocket, you know, overnight. They've had this for a couple of years, and it's within their Eagle Ford. It's just it's an Eagle Ford gas play, and it's within that existing acreage. So it's it's a money play. They already have the infrastructure in place. It's super close close to the Gulf Coast. It just makes total sense. Yeah. So
0: it'll be interesting on the next quarter calls if we hear Energy Transfer and Enterprise talk about it, um, because that will that will be the indicator from the midstream side. There's. Not a ton of good news on midstream in general. The Northeast is looking pretty compelling. Um, We actually think there's a case to be made for gathering and processing two to three year time frame in the Permian on capacity utilization. But Permian oil egress is a nightmare. It's way overpiped. Um, But the Eagleford, you know, definitely you can get gas to market there. Um, The good thing for upstream is with the exception of the Northeast, you know, there's not a lot of risk of differential blowouts. Um, so that's going to make drilling economics look pretty compelling for the next two to three years.
1: So can we back up on that a little bit? Cause sure. I think I don't think a lot of folks are completely clear on, on the midstream side folks. Sometimes you know the upstream really well or the midstream really well, but I want to unpack that a little bit on. So the view right now you're saying is that you've, give you view the Marcellus being steady the Marcellus has enough takeaway capacity that you can get it to market the Eagle Ford Eagle Ford definitely or even the gas or this new Dorado play has enough capacity to get it to market from from cuz it's so yeah, there there're
0: always going to be, you know, capex needs on a on a smaller scale but in terms of large diameter intrastate and interstate pipeline we're we're in pretty good shape
1: and how about the Permian? so so prior to prior to covid and you know, if you if we were gonna go on that four point nine million barrel day trajectory of the Permian, what was the what was the outlook prior to COVID, say February of 20? What was the outlook on natural gas, the transportation of natural gas within the basin and out of the basin? Yeah.
0: All right. So picking apart the streams, liquids is overpiped. Natural yep. gas, yep. we have had differential issues and we have Permian Highway coming on. So that should improve gas differentials. You know, until there's, you know, we have seen voluntary flaring, uh, curtailments and restrictions from some of the larger players. I think the industry's going to need to get on that before there's any kind of regulatory push, which I don't see based on the current Texas Railroad Commission. Um, but it's it's a black eye for the industry. We need to not do that. But
1: they're all doing. They're all addressing it in some capacity. I mean, right. Well, not. Everybody the big universally, boys are. the smaller but, guys aren't, yeah,
0: yeah. So, I mean, that that is an issue, but but right now, um, yeah, I mean, it, there's there's gonna be more capacity in the short term on natural gas, uh, which should help differentials there and you know, total, total now, oil economics if, as well.
1: If Texas does, so let's say we do have a pivot hard from a pivot hard to Texas, because, so we've already
0: seen more rig activity in New Mexico, yes, based on. You know, fear. We saw yep. we saw the same thing in Colorado ahead yep. of um, the regs.
1: But let's say we see Texas really blowing up in the next two years, and let's say we have more gas than we're expecting out of the Permian.
0: We could, you know, look. There's there's room for more gas capacity. The issue is um, the unwillingness of E to commit. You know, they don't have the balance sheet. They don't want to sign up for anything. Um, you know, I just don't think that's an issue. They're they're gonna struggle to, you know, remarket and pay for the take or pay contracts on oil, which is okay. a, which is an issue.
1: What about this I mean, talking about natural gas, the one thing that scares me with this is that is that this concept of, hey, we feel really good about natural gas and then we see a couple of entrants into it. It's very easy. We've seen I mean, the Permian is the Marcellus of oil. I mean, we Marcellus was, you know, what happened to gas. I mean, it was the guys you know, Aubrey McClendon is famous for this, of sort of having this outlook where he thought he was the only man that was gonna, you know, he crushed it, but everybody else crushed it with him, and they brought on too much so much natural gas that we, we upended the entire glo- ga- global gas market, literally just with some R-spot market. But this new entrance with these companies, obviously if the is doing it, you're gonna see smaller companies come in and say we're back into natural gas. Don't we have the risk of sort of flooding the system again and prices coming down?
0: You know, I think at sustained prices north of $3, that would be an issue. And I think we're certainly going to see some more directed drag-ass drilling. We think the Arklatex and the Haynesville, and I would suppose also the, the Eagleford, are in a great position to to take share here. I agree with that, yeah. And, uh, you know, the problem, of course, is that, you know, we've seen some, you know, Coastal and but you know in terms of the lng liquefaction that capacity takes a long to bring online that's not a not a huge driver but gas demand has been pretty resilient so um you know it's one of those things like we're running sensitivity analysis in our big upcoming report dirty little secrets uh shameless self-promotion here Um, it's our big annual report it's pretty compelling but we're doing stress testing and you know our our high oil case produces a lot more associated gas and drives our gas price forecast down so you know it, it definitely changes the dry gas call when that happens but you know sub 50 still pretty constructive environment for natural gas
1: yeah agreed. <music>